The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1904, Henry James published The Golden Bowl, the final novel of what is often called James's late period or his major phase. The book has inspired and confounded readers ever since, telling the story of a father and daughter and their respective spouses, who themselves have once been lovers. The Golden Bowl has often been praised for its deep exploration into the consciousness of its characters, even as James's prose style veered toward the difficult and at times maddening style of his later years. Now a new author, Denisha Smith, has taken the plot and the characters of The Golden Bowl and adapted the central concerns of the book with her own fresh take subtracting the circumlocutions, and producing a book that has been widely praised for its efficient storytelling power. Henry James, The Golden Bowl, Denisha Smith, and The Prince, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. Wow, what a spring. What a month. Here we are in June already. What a year. It's all flying by, isn't it? And we've got lots to cover. So let's get started. Some of you are wondering what's up with the Patreon account. Well, that's still going strong. Patreon.com slash literature for a small monthly donation. For those of you who would like to throw a few coins in our cup. I will be thanking all the new Patreons soon. I know that's piling up. We are doing our best, people. Okay, where to begin? Let's do a little golden bowl, and guess what? We also have a preview today. Maybe we should do that first. Well, let's do the golden bowl. Henry James, look. Here I go. <laughs> Running in circles. <laughs> Maybe that's appropriate for Mr. James, especially the Mr. James of 1904. But we will talk about that. Uh, well, let's do it right now. Here we go. <laughs> See how maddening it can be to circle around like this? Well, that's James, but James has substance. That's all worth it. Hopefully the podcast does too. Okay, so I found a good article that helps to put Henry James's late period style in perspective. This is from John Banville, writing in the Irish Times, and he considers James's style and how those long and labyrinthine sentences with snatches of considerations and rejections, and it's kind of like stream of consciousness. If you describe it to someone, they might say, oh, yeah, well, he's doing the stream of consciousness. No, no, it's not quite that. It's not quite what you might find in James Joyce, in Ulysses, or in Virginia Woolf, for example. But it has some parallels. As I've talked about before, James is kind of a bridge from the Dickenses and George Eliots of the world into the modernists. He's a bridge in time period and also in style. So, John Banville considers all this and what all this does. And then he has a quote that uh, I think summarizes it nicely. He says, quote, It would be foolish to claim that any person has ever gone through a single waking hour 
recording his or her thoughts and impressions in the kind of prose James employs in those tremendous and sometimes wearyingly opaque late novels. All the same, the dauntless reader immersed in, say, the golden bowl will be aware, at however obscure a level, of being caught up in an experience very like the experience of consciousness itself. There will be the same sense of groping vagueness, of distracted wonderings, of guesses entertained and abandoned and then entertained again, the same suspicion of knowing something without knowing it, along with, now and then, sudden clearances, sudden dispersals of the fog, sudden steppings into the light of revelation and blissful certainty. This, we realize, is exactly how it feels to be sentient and astray amid the bewildering complexity of quotidian reality. Art makes life, James famously insisted in a letter to that relentless paragon of common sense, H.G. Wells. The claim will seem excessive until we realize that what the artist, and James was never less than an artist, meant was that art gives a shape to that incoherent process of stumbling but not quite falling that constitutes our state of being in the world. We do not remember our birth. We shall not know that we are dead. All we have is the mess in between these two extremes of eternal non-existence. End quote. Whew. That's so good. The stumbling but not quite falling, the incoherent process, art gives some shape to it. But we know what it's like to grope forward, don't we? Doesn't that make you want to read James? Or does it? Or does it? Sometimes the fog... Ah, oh, well, sometimes you don't feel like being in the fog, even if there are sudden dispersals now and then. There are days when the fog is kind of cool and feels like life, and there are days when you think, come on, more fog, more fog, let me see some sunshine. Well, good news. Denisha Smith is the sunshine version of this. The prose is very readable in her novel. You don't need to time travel back into a world where they barely know what cars are. Her book is called The Prince. It takes the central conceits of the golden bowl, money, power, sex, and family, and all the conflicts that those conceits bring about. You know them as well as anyone, I'm sure. Everyone knows, right? Let me name them again. Money, power, sex, and family. You think there are conflicts there? <laughs> if you don't think so, well, God bless you. You've been living a happy life, I guess. But for most of us, those are, the, those are four pretty big stumbling blocks to happiness. They bring uh, conflicts as well as pleasures. Okay. Denisha Smith delivers all this in prose that's smart and audacious and sharp and cunning, but without those winding staircases that go in multiple directions, sometimes to nowhere. It's one thing to have a staircase that winds, but sometimes you have to go up and then down and then up, and then you're on one that's a dead end, and well, enough about Henry James. Denisha Smith gives us a ladder. You go up one direction, climb it, see the view from up top. But James 
gives us the contours of this journey, including the peaks. The Golden Bowl has a marvelous plot. Maggie Verver lives in London. She's the daughter of Adam Verver, who is wealthy and a widower. They are Americans. Also, Adam Verver is an American art collector. A prince arrives, Amerigo, an impoverished Italian nobleman, but he's charismatic, which has been my experience with Italians of all stripes, rich and poor, noble and not. Maggie is planning to marry this prince, Amerigo, but there's a complication. Maggie has a childhood friend, another American, Charlotte Stant, who long ago had an affair with Prince Amerigo, the husband-to-be in Rome, unbeknownst to Maggie, who marries the prince, who, of course, is impoverished and could use the verver money. Charlotte, meanwhile, the friend, is poor. So that's one bomb ticking, waiting to explode. The prince and Charlotte are still intimate, connected by this past affair, and maybe they will fall into an affair right under Maggie's nose. Well, spoiler alert, they do have an affair, poor Maggie. Meanwhile, Maggie, who believes her childhood friend is decent and kind, as she basically is, even though movie versions have sometimes portrayed her as a usurping manipulator. But here's the big twist. Maggie believes her father is lonely and her childhood friend, Charlotte, is kind and wonderful and, as far as Maggie knows, not having an affair with her husband, of all people. And so Maggie matchmakes her father with Charlotte. Those two get married. Okay, so let's see what we have here. Prince Amerigo is poor, the poor Italian, the nobleman. He's married to Maggie, and he's having an affair with Maggie's childhood friend, which means he is also having an affair with his mother-in-law. Charlotte is poor and married to her friend's father. She's cheating on him with her oldest friend's husband. Maggie is rich, but her oldest childhood friend is now her mother-in-law, who is cheating on Maggie's father with Maggie's husband. And Adam Verver is rich and marries a younger woman who is cheating on him with his daughter's husband. You see how this square works with these four people? And guess what? I haven't even mentioned yet the relationship. If you're drawing a square and you're drawing crisscrosses with all these people and all the affairs they're having, you also have to connect uh, Adam and Maggie. Because guess what helps to drive the prince and Charlotte into each other's arms? It's the closeness and intimacy of Maggie and Adam, the daughter and father. We're not lovers or anything, but they have a strong bond, a connection that makes the spouses jealous. Or if that's not the right word, maybe it is the right word. The father and daughter are close and concerned about one another, and sometimes their spouses feel like they're more concerned about each other and their relationship to the exclusion of their marriages. Okay, I also haven't talked about some other characters in the book, like Fanny Assingham. My goodness, is James clunky sometimes. That's like a draft name that editors editors would sort of 
raised an eyebrow and suggests maybe you could find another name than that. But was anyone editing James at this point? I don't know. If you put that name in a comic book movie, you'd probably get groans from the audience. But oh well. With James, sometimes we just roll with it. He's so stodgy sometimes, or he seems that way sometimes, that you kind of enjoy his little quirks, his Fanny Essinghams and Casper Goodwoods. Enjoy those little quirks as a reminder that he was more than just a brain in a jar cranking out long and deep novels. He takes us to the bottom of the ocean, unexplored territory, dark down there, lots of pressure. And sometimes it's just nice to resurface and breathe and catch a bit of sunlight. Okay. So, speaking of sunlight, Denisha Smith has taken this plot and turned it into something with a little more forward motion. The Prince. I'll give you a few endorsements of that book, and then we'll bring her out, so to speak, and hear how she adapted the Golden Bowl, or maybe I should say drew upon it, for her novel. But first, let's hear from a guest who's going to be joining us soon, John Higgs, who has written a book called William Blake versus the World, a glittering and revelatory work all about Blake and his visions and how Blake lived in the world and struggled against it, sort of. But what does that mean versus the world? I asked John all about it. It's pretty fascinating, actually, how Blake lived, how he saw these things that others didn't. He saw angels and could talk to them. He saw the universe in ways wholly unlike how most of us walk through life and what that meant for his art, both his visual art and his poetry, and also what it meant for Blake, just as a person talking to other people. For Blake, it wasn't so astonishing to see these visions. It was more astonishing that other people didn't. How does that affect a person? How did that affect him? And how does it affect a biographer who spends months and years following this curious little man who lived more than 200 years ago, but who still strikes us for his singular vision and purpose? Curious little man who is also a giant. In this preview, I asked John Higgs to give us a taste of Blake and his world. Okay, John Higgs is here helping us to understand the mind and mythology of William Blake as set forth in his new book, William Blake versus the World. We will have him here for a full episode soon. John Higgs, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thanks for having me. So if I said to you, tell us your favorite story about William Blake, which one would you pick? Ah, now, uh, there's a, you've got a lot to choose from there. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, right. I particularly like, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a painting he did called The Ghost of a Flea. It's a no. very strange, disturbing, gothic, little scaly sort of monster. Uh, <laughs> and it's carrying a little uh, acorn, which is full of blood, because fle fleas drink blood. <laughs> and it's supposed to be the portrait of... Um, you know, a rich, successful, powerful, uh, you know, a businessman or a wealthy man who who thinks that they're, uh, you know, that they're living the, the best sort of life. But spiritually, they're just a little flea. They're just a little flea drinking it, its its blood because that's the spiritual side of them has been sort of completely ignored. Uh, and the yeah. reason I love this painting so much is we've got some sketches he did for it. Uh, and he, because William Blake 
everything he painted he saw in his vision um and at one point clearly the the ghost of the flea moved and changed the way its jaw was and he had to sort of start again because oh. the, the thing he was looking at had moved and, and what i love about this is it it just shows that um uh it wasn't just him making things up you know right, and, and right. Like the visions were there in front of him and he was desperately trying to capture them you know he was sort yeah. of being he was very much being led by them uh and um the fact that this happened that such a awful looking horrible little monster turned out to be a terrible portrait sitter as well it's just i just find very funny you wonder if he would, if he was sort of saying, hey, you there, hold still. Yeah, I, absolutely. I missed it. <laughs> absolutely. For God's sake. Ghost of a flea. You just oh. Sit still. oh, I love it. Okay, that's so fascinating. We will hear more about Mr. Blake very soon. John Higgs, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, that's John Higgs. It is, that was really a fun conversation. Blake is so fascinating. And if you're a Monty Python fan, you'll want to join us for it. How's that for a teaser? Monty Python, if you, Monty Python, who doesn't like Monty Python? If you like ice cream and the moon, you'll want to join us. All advertising should be like that, right? If you like X, and X is something that, of course, everyone likes. If you like money and having sex, you'll love our new car. Well, I guess that's what advertising is, mostly. <laughs> Now that I think about it, that is what they do. Hello, epiphany that tells us nothing new. The Jack Wilson special. But really, if you like poetry and Blake and Monty Python and a good, smart, funny author and guest, you'll want to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and come back for the conversation with John Higgs, which I think we're going to have next week. But... Speaking of good and smart and funny and money and sex, too, let's talk to Denisha Smith about her new novel, The Prince, along with Henry James and The Golden Bowl. Here's what Lee Child says about The Prince, quote, Beautiful, elegant, and delicate, and wholly satisfying as a present-day story, this book's true delight is how, in both a literary and an emotional sense, the past informs the present and the present informs the past. End quote. And Andre Asaman says, What a wonderful gift of a book, and what a treat to return to Henry James's radiant plot a century later to recover the magic, the genius, and beauty of those shadows that always hover between one person and another. But it is always trust that pays the price in the end. A stunning an audacious retelling. And finally, how about this one? Michael Gora, author of Portrait of a Novel, Henry James and the Making of an American Masterpiece, says, quote, More than a clever updating of Henry James's last masterpiece, Denisha Smith has found possibilities in the old story that James didn't or couldn't explore. End quote. Mmm. Tantalizing. Denisha Smith. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Denisha Smith, author of The Prince, a novel inspired by Henry James's classic 1904 novel, The Golden Bowl. Money, power, sex, and family, this book is a winner, says National Public Radio, and Smith is a master storyteller, adds author Hilma Wolitzer. Denisha Smith, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much. I am here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. So I know you worked as a reporter for the New York Times, but I wasn't sure if you started out as a New Yorker. Where did you grow up? I grew up in England, in the United Kingdom. I'm an American citizen. Mm -hmm. My father was a journalist in London, and I was born here, went over when I was six months old, and then we returned to America when I was 13. Oh, right. And were you living in New York when you moved back? mostly in Westchester and New York City. Well, that is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, but let's just jump into Henry James because we'll get there. Do you remember when you read Henry James for the first time? You know, I only know that I was probably in college or my early 20s. Yeah, well, that seems like a good age. I'm glad you didn't try to tackle him when you were 12 or something. Yes, I hope not. It would have been the end. Yeah, right. <laughs> scarred for life. <laughs> yes, scarred for life. <laughs> Do you remember what it was that you read? Probably Washington Square. Oh, yeah. Um, which is how most of us start out with him. And I can't remember, you know, all of them. I've read most of them over the years. I've read The Golden Bull several times, actually. So, you know, over the years, I've read him and loved him and then was drawn to see what would happen if I bought his penultimate novel, The Golden Bull, into the 21st century mm. and tried to understand what would have happened. And as I've said, I, I love Henry James, but I wanted, I cannot write like that. I, I wrote the new novel in what we might call ordinary English, not slang, but yeah. plain English. And that's sort of how it evolved. That particular novel always really intrigued me, as difficult as it is. Yeah. It is a very difficult novel. But before we get to The Golden Bowl, I have a ton of questions about The Golden Bowl. But let's talk about James just in general for a moment. I'm wondering, what draws you to his writings? Is it the, the settings or the themes or the characters or the... What, what is it about... Henry James, that you've found compelling? 
in general, what fascinates me about James is you have this style that is almost stately at, at mm. its best. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sometimes extremely complicated. Yes. But there is this emotional violence in the stories. Yes. And it's kind of cloaked in this measured language in the early books in this very sort of uh, veil of, you know, words. But it is the violence underneath it, the pain, the passion, the passion is fascinating. So the juxtaposition of these two things is very fascinating to me. Right. I mean, we're all familiar with the portraits of Henry James. We see him as this older figure, sort of a stuffed shirt, and then... You know, he seems, and he's so devoted to literature, and he's he's almost like a monk. I think of him like a one of literature's monks. And then you read the, the anecdotes about him, and one I've never forgotten is how he was so upset once at his dog being apart from him, and then when the dog returned, he buried his face in the dog's fur and wept. And it just seems like there was so much brewing underneath. And you see that in his descriptions of his relationships with people sometimes. But he puts it into his work that these are people who, you know, there's a lot of drama going on in kind of the mildest of settings externally sometimes. This is true. And in fact, that goes to one of my theories, and it's only a theory about his language, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. the nature of his language, which I am interested in. As you know, the novels become more and more so-called difficult to read. I read them as almost as poetry. You know, I don't search for precision. I let the language float over me as it goes on. So I've always wondered, why does this happen? As he grew older, he developed, we think, carpal tunnel syndrome, which is something that people get from working at computers and typewriters. And he hired typists. So people always think of James's late style as being the result of his walking around the room dictating to his typists, and he could be discursive. Yeah. However, I wonder if there's another thing going on, and I'm certainly not the first person to think about this, which is there's been plenty of discussion about the notion that James was gay. Mm. Um, Nobody knows if he was ever able to act on his feelings, but you look at the letters as he grows older, they're very passionate, even within the conventions of Victorian letter writing. And one of my thoughts is the Golden Bowl, for instance, was written around the time of the Oscar Wilde trials. And I'm wondering if as If you look at his life, he evolved, he began to, as he grew older, associate more and more and more with with gay men in his circle of friends. Yeah. And um, I sometimes wonder if he he began to be able to acknowledge his desires as he grew older, but of course could never speak publicly about them or write about them. Again, this is speculation. So that I sometimes wonder if, like Proust with Albertine, some of the characters in the novel, especially in this late one perhaps, they express his longing and his desire, his feelings, in heterosexual terms, which perhaps are feelings that are directed to men. 
I don't know this, but maybe he needed an outlet for these passions, a way of expressing them. And of course, it would have been impossible during the Oscar Wilde period to write openly about that. But I'm not sure. But it's an interesting possibility. If you look at the late letters, you know, they're very passionate relationship with Hendrik Andersen, a young sculptor in Rome, American born, I believe. They're very, very passionate, very full of longing. So I don't know, but it's just a theory of his language that I wonder about. (laughs) There is. Yeah, that is a very compelling theory. And we did a whole string of episodes on the beast in the jungle. And oh, I love that. Yeah. And it there does seem to be something in him, whether I know it's it's speculative as to his uh, whether he was gay or, or anything, but there does seem to have been in him a feeling that there was a part of life that he did not let himself live, that he had missed out, that he had stopped himself from being a the full person that he could have been. I absolutely understand, and, and I think it's very possible one way or another, of course, we've got the wonderful Colm Toybin novel, The Master, which mm. is an expression of that. And actually, once I was talking to Colm Toybin and I said, in that novel, you never allow Henry James to actually have an encounter or an experience with any of the men who come through in the novel. And why did you deny him that? And Toybin said, well, then there would have been no novel yeah. <laughs> because the whole novel is about longing, right? right? You know, that can never be experienced, expressed and can never be fulfilled. And uh, I think it's very possible and it's very difficult to figure out the whole thing. I personally think that very likely gay experiences were, of course, possible and common. It's just that you couldn't talk about them. And also the definition of what is gay in that period was very complex. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know if people thought of even thought of themselves as gay, some people, or they certainly didn't use that word. So to them, homosexual experiences may have been just another form of sexual expression. Some of them, Mm. I don't know. But anyway, that's a theory. (laughs) Right. And as you say, it it does seem to provide an explanation for his prose becoming more and more discursive. And I read a a great description. I wish I could remember who said this because I'd love to give them credit. But it was a critic who pointed out that James, especially in his later works, he's indirect where you expect him to be direct. And (laughs) he's surprisingly and suddenly direct and plain spoken where you think he might hold back. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost um, symphonic in some ways, especially this late novel. For example, in The Golden Bowl, as opposed to The Prince, well, and perhaps even in my novel too, uh, if you recall in The Golden Bowl, the most passionate expression of sexuality is a kiss. But when it emerges from all this discursiveness, this implied emotion, it becomes so powerful when he allows them to kiss and says kiss in in the text. (laughs) You know, it becomes, it just is amazing because he's muted so much. So I see that point. You know, I just think he's a wonderful writer. He's, He's not for everyone, of course, the late novel, 
Uh, I was very concerned. I didn't want to try to do what he was doing in his style. I wanted to make, in the prints, I wanted to make it very clear. But there's a wonderful quote about Henry James from H.G. Wells, which goes something like this. Henry James was like a huge hippopotamus trying to push a pea into the corner of his cage while still maintaining his dignity. So yeah. <laughs> This is how H.G. Wells saw Henry James. I love the quote. It's a little elaborate, but that's that's Victorian. That's fantastic. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about the Golden Bowl and, of course, the Prince. Okay, we are back. So we've talked about Henry James. We heard a quote from H.G. Wells of James being like a hippopotamus, pushing a pea into the corner of his cage and maintaining his dignity. (laughs) Denisha Smith, what drew you to the novel The Golden Bull in particular? In particular, it drew me because it's a novel like uh, The Prince. It's a novel about a family with a terrible secret. Mm. And how does that secret, once, it be, once it's beginning to be revealed to the family members, how do they cope with it? And yeah. I find the resolution in James to be stunning. I find it just amazing. This terrible thing is happening. And people at first aren't aware of it, then they become aware of it, or you think they do, because, of course, James never says the words exactly, which is another brilliance of the novel. How do you convey a a knowledge growing and at the same time not declare it directly because that's perhaps the way some of us begin to become aware of things. And so I found that coupled with, again, the stately atmosphere that James's novel takes place on in grand estates mostly and the people never say what they feel, ever. Right. And there's very little action. But it's, what's going on is just terrible, terrible. Yeah. And uh, I was fascinated by that. And, you know, all families, most families have some kind of secret. There's a crazy uncle. Someone had an affair they shouldn't have had. That kind of thing. They do, yeah. And I feel kind of a connection with them. I grew up in the Midwest, and I've... Uh, constantly been shocked now that I live on the East Coast of how frank and direct people will be about their feelings. I'm used to a world that was probably more like Henry James's where people just, they hid everything that they thought and they they didn't confront people directly and everything kind of came out accidentally or you could imply things or they just suffered in silence for years and years. And it it is fascinating to me how long people are willing to go without having that conversation that could upend things, you know, the status quo. You know, you're so, I grew up in the United Kingdom and I was raised by an English woman, my stepmother, and went to school in England, you know, learned to read and write in England and boy, was that characteristic of the British and of the culture that I grew up in. And indeed, my father came from upstate New York. It wasn't common, certainly never to confront people, never to 
I think certainly in in our generation in the in the modern generation it's more common. But yeah, you, there were words you couldn't utter, you couldn't say them. Right, you couldn't say the word sex. Very rarely it was always make love, and which right. is fine, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Or you couldn't say, I suspect you of this, or uh, oh, I'm having no. some doubts. Reassure me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly couldn't. No, you just sort of swallowed, gulped it down. <laughs> right. So I don't want to ask you anything that would give away any secrets in your book, and maybe we should even avoid some of the secrets that would would for people who haven't yet read The Golden Bowl. But I think we can start at the beginning of the book. I'm interested whether you kept the four main characters in The Golden Bowl. So much of this is kind of this square. And for people who might be thinking that that implies two couples who have interacting uh, and overlapping relationships, yes, that's true. Although I like the twist in Henry James that one of the couples is uh, not a couple, so to speak, but is a father and daughter. So do you have the basics of the the four main characters? Did you import those into The Prince? Yes, I did. And actually, as long as I don't give away the ending, I don't mind delineating the crisis, mm-hmm. um, if, if you agree. What I did was, Henry James was writing uh, this novel at sort of at the time of the beginning of the robber barons the industrialization yeah. of the modern world and, and especially in in uh, New York or in the United States. His own father, his grandfather, was you know, one of the uh, investors in the Erie Canal. So anyway, I took the idea of, in my case, I made, there are four characters in Henry James and in my novel, The Prince. Um, there is, in my case, in the 21st century, in the prince, the main one of the main characters is a father, a widower, who is a descendant of the robber barons, an immensely wealthy man who knows full well these robber barons, as you know, were rather brutal people. They were not well educated. This character, a middle-aged man and a father, a widower, is very aware of his antecedents. He's you know, a moral person. And he becomes a public interest lawyer. He, but he's still surrounded by this immense wealth. And he has a daughter, as in the original James. She is an intelligent girl, but she has been raised in a bubble. And some of the trajectory of my novel, and and really, to, and actually in the Golden Bowl, but in The Prince, the trajectory is her growing into maturity going from innocence into experience, uh, to speak in Blake in terms. Mm-hmm. She, so she is, she is about to marry an impoverished Italian prince, as in the original James. You may wonder how, um, how there can be such a thing as an it- impoverished Italian prince in the modern era. But there is. The reason for this is, is that as... Uh, the decades have passed down through Italy. First of all, yeah. uh, titles are not recognized by the Italian government. Taxation on these princely estates is very high. They have a kind of landmark status. They can't be transformed into assisted living. 
So a lot of these families survive by giving tours, by renting out rooms in the palazzos. Anyway, and as the generations descend, uh, the money is dissipated. So my guy, he is engaged to this wealthy American girl. He's kind of searching for himself. He doesn't have much of an identity. I kind of um, emphasize that in my novel much more than in Henry James. For example, he's trying to uh, start a hip-hop band in Rome. He gets a job in an Italian bank. He's a decoration so that the bankers can introduce him as the prince when they're trying to get investors into into Italian securities. So he's going to marry this very, very wealthy, very lovely young woman, very sweet. And just as they're about to get married, onto the scene comes his old girlfriend, who in the Henry James novel is someone he had to break up with because neither had any money. Mm. And as in my novel... She's uh, in The Prince. um, She's very charismatic. She's very, very beautiful. She's very independent. And he broke up with her because they they didn't have any money. They couldn't get married. So she comes on the scene. She happens to be an old childhood friend of his wife. The marriage goes through. He's very, very unsettled by her appearance in his life. And eventually, as the months passed, he cannot resist her anymore. And they begin this affair again. They resume it. And he is, in my novel, intensely guilty because he does love his wife, but he also loves Mm. this woman. And so that's some of what goes on. Again, the trajectory of the novel is the growing awareness, unarticulated, on the part of the young bride, whom I call Emily in The Prince, that something is going on, something terrible. The literary problem is to convey that because I don't think initially she gives the words they are having an affair to this. So I had to try to explain how this would happen, what would happen. So she does something that is rather interesting, and it's not clear whether at that point she knows precisely that there's an affair, but she may sense there's something dangerous. And she encourages her father to marry this girl yeah. who's much younger. And in The Prince, they get married. And again, the girl, Christina, she thinks she loves this man. He's older, but he's very good. He's a good person. He's moral. So there you have this awful situation where a son-in-law is sleeping with his mother-in-law and you have these, the ruler of the family, this kind of godlike figure and this very good young woman, they now have a baby and there you have a terrible situation and what is going to happen. I know a lot of adaptations of the golden bowl for films have adapted the friend, uh, I can't remember what you said, the name was, it's Charlotte in the Golden Bowl. But... That's right, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and they've they've come down and in order to make the plot work, some of them have made her manipulative and cunning and others will say that's not really quite right with the the James novel. It's not, it's not quite the same, that's sort of a, a liberty. Did you find that you needed to make her 
have some agency in order to make all of this work? Or did you give her a different kind of personality? I very much saw the intruder, the beautiful young woman. In my view, she is, well, almost a tragic character. Mm. She is not manipulative. She is caught. She loves this man, the prince. She also loves her husband, his father-in-law, in a different way. Initially, well, I give her a background that uh, James does not delineate. I see her as she's half Italian, half American. Her mother is sort of a hippie who was irresponsible and loved her, but, you know, smoked a lot of weed, got involved in various cults, and she kind of raised herself. She loved this man for who he was, not because he was a prince. And in fact, I think neither woman loved him because he was a prince, although that marriage, you know, was rather traditional during the era of the robber barons when the descendants or the early descendants of the Vanderbilts and Rockefellers married into the aristocracy, the impoverished aristocracy in Europe, and they gained cash and the robber baron families gained the cachet of a title. So anyway, in many ways, both the prince and the intruder, whom I call Christina, they're helpless in the face of these passions mm. and they're not just sexual, they're, they're love. And yeah. uh, so it makes the dilemma more interesting to me. And it wasn't hard for me to see her that way. I don't see her as manipulative. Yes, in some ways, maybe, but not as an instrument of evil or bad faith, right. but rather true love. <laughs> Well, people, when they hear the plot, they might think, oh, it sounds like a soap opera where you're just saying you and you pair up and you and you pair up and we're all going to be old friends and we're going to be related. And so there's going to be all of these ties and all of that. But actually, I find it quite plausible because in real life, when you set aside, you know, if you accept that you're unaware of two people having a past history or having a secret love affair under your nose, it does resonate with me that people who have childhood friends like the idea of, uh, well, what if what if I set you up with my brother? Or what if I set you up with my cousin? And wouldn't that be fun? Then when we go to these reunions, I would have my friend there. And when we go to the, these, these holidays, it wouldn't be with a stranger, but it would be with someone I'm already close to. And, and the idea that as a couple, there's nothing better than having another couple where all four people get along. And yes, you yes. can, no matter how you're seated at the table, you can talk. It's not just the two men or it's not just the two women who can find something in common, but all four people have something that they could talk about and, and get along with. So you could imagine that this uh, the daughter would think, well, my husband obviously gets along with this old childhood friend of mine, and, and <laughs> yes. I'm a little bit worried about my father. And look at this. Wouldn't we make a nice uh, foursome, so to speak? And so I could see it all happening, and then, but with that secret being the, the ticking bomb, so to speak, uh, yes. you can only imagine how things start to uh, play out. And one of the interesting parts of the novel, um, at least in my case, one of the literarily interesting cases of the prince is what happens when these four people spend time together all this time with mm. two of them engaged in this you know illicit affair and actually it's it's awful for them 
Mm -hmm. awful for the two people carrying on the illicit affair because they're in love. They have to pretend that they're happily married, that they don't really know each other that well. And yet the heat between them is, is very great. And it, it, it actually becomes kind of, it, it becomes awful, awful for them because they have dinners, they have Christmases, they have holidays. A lot of the time the novel is set on this private island in the middle of Long Island Sound that they own. This is one of the largest private islands in Long Island Sound, and it is accessible only to this one family and their staff. And once a year, the Audubon Society or the local historical society across the water. But this fascinated me because there is such an island in Long Island Sound called Gardner's Island. Hmm. The family in my novel, The Prince, bears no resemblance to the family that owns Gardner's Island. In fact, I'm not even sure what its status is, whether it's a trust or at this point, but I have been there. And I found it fascinating that it's a primeval space. There's a lot of um, first growth, many first growth forests, woods, and I found this this an interesting setting, a sort of primeval space where these uh, events take place, and they again the journey of the young woman is from innocence to experience. So the you you might say that sin is visited on yeah. this island. <laughs> so, and a serpent? Sin with no serpent? Yeah, yeah right. The serpent within. Yes, the serpent within. It's well said, yes. <laughs> okay, so you wanted to, uh, I don't know if modernize the language is the right word, or just write in a different style. Was there anything else that you felt like you needed to update in order to bring this as a novel into the 21st century? Well, yes. I mean, I had to be, I wanted to be careful because in some ways the characters are still living a 19th century life, Mm -hmm. but I had to make it plausible that they would be living in the 21st century. So I did a lot of um, research into certain things. At the beginning of the novel, they sign a prenuptial agreement. I had to research what would that look like in the 21st century. There's an allusion in the um, in the original novel to a contract. It's called in uh, the Prince. It's a prenup, and it's done in in a big modern office of the family law firm. The family's affairs, as in the case of many wealthy families, are managed by a family office. They're the people who, you know pay your taxes, arrange insurance on your co-ops, and so on, and they do everything for you. I brought in a computer into the novel, um, cell phones, but I I just rethought everything. I had the novel, Henry James's novel takes place in the United Kingdom mostly. In my novel, it takes place entirely actually in the United States, but there are some things that take place in Rome I wanted to make it clear that the prince is not a bad guy at all. Mm. He's Again, he's about 30 years old. He doesn't know who he is yet. And for example, in Rome, he's trying to do something with his life. Um, he lives with a bunch of roommates and they smoke a lot of weed. And he volunteers as a coach 
a soccer coach for a group of migrant teenagers. In Rome, the migrants, many of them from North Africa, are hated. They sleep in abandoned buildings. They sleep in railroad stations. And the police come in and they destroy their habitat. They loathe them. So these kids, some of whom have come alone across the Mediterranean, are vagabonds. And so my guy, my prince in The Prince, you know, he volunteers as a coach. He cares about these kids. He, you know, can't really help them. But I needed to make him, because as I've observed in the case of the descendants of many of these robber baron families, for example, the Rockefellers, some of them are doctors, they're environmentalists. They're trying to cope with this immense wealth and their moral awareness. So this was something I, these were things I did the fun part was the island, I must say. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Just talking about the people, I I wanted to mention this earlier when you had talked about being descended from robber barons, but going into public interest law. I yeah. remember there was a, a documentary years and years ago that I watched called Growing Up Rich, I think it was called. And it was all oh. about these these kids. And I found that so many of them had the same pattern of basically the second or third, you know, the, the grandfather maybe made all the money and the second or third generations beyond that were so screwed up and so yes. addicted to yes. drugs and just yes. like having these horrible lives that I found it, it got to be a little boring to follow them. But what was interesting, yes. yeah, mm -hmm. okay. What was interesting were the handful who were trying to do something else and who were saying, I want to be an elementary school teacher or I want yes. to be a uh, work for a nonprofit, but not running it, just a computer programmer or something yes. like that. And who yes. were kind of trying to escape this curse of that wealth can bring when it, especially when it's unearned and especially when it, it comes with all kinds of of headaches and kind of transforms your personality. So I really like the idea that uh, this guy would be doing that. But let me ask you a final question. Sure. I believe that if Henry James were alive today, he would definitely still be writing novels. But I'm wondering, do you think he would be writing books like The Prince? Ah, uh, no. I'm I'm afraid to say that. I don't think he would have liked, liked the prince at all. I wonder what he would have done. He's called a precursor of modernism. Most of his yeah. the novels take place within the characters' minds. There's very yeah. little action. I don't know what he would be doing. He might be, it's possible he would have turned into a kind of Louis Auchincloss, um, mm. who, who wrote rather mm -hmm. engaging novels about the upper classes. It's possible because he was so brilliant that he might have taken on some of this postmodern uh, literary style, he, he might have become quite experimental because he was very experimental. I don't know if he could have, I think actually James was a snob and I don't know what his palate would have been. Would he, would he have gone from there into more, uh, you know, more various genres? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, he was very, very brilliant and yeah. uh, it's hard to know what he would have done. Yeah. And the temptation today maybe would just be to write criticism, but he had such an artistic sensibility, too. You wonder where he would fall in that in that spectrum if he would be in in uh, go into academia, for example, and just be a kind of literary lion that way or if he would continue yes. to be cranking out novels. So he was quite a critic. He was very good. OK, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, well, let's leave things there. Uh, the book is called The Prince, available now at bookstores everywhere. Denisha Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Do check out The Prince. It's a fabulous read. And hey, why not check out Henry James, too, while you're at it? He's one of our heroes here at the History of Literature. You could read The Golden Bowl or start with something shorter. My thanks to Denisha Smith for joining us, and my thanks also to John Higgs who gave us that taste of William Blake and his visions. John Higgs will join us for a full episode very soon. And finally, my thanks to you, dear listeners, and to all of our patrons and supporters who have helped us out over the years. We are headed into summer, which means piles of books and beach bags full of them and trips to the library and the bookstore, and I love all of it. Happy June, everyone. Let's all have a good summer. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.